I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you get a custom-tailored suit, it's going to fit perfectly and make you look great. Think about that with a Noble First for your organization. No matter what the size of your company is, a Noble First will analyze your data and collaborate with you to custom tailor digital solutions so you can focus on making your organization grow. When it comes to data-centric solutions specifically for your organization, choose a Noble First. A Noble First makes living simple. See for yourself at anoblefirst.com, E-N-N-O-B-L-E-First.com. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. They say that most anglers go through a progression. They start out hoping to catch one fish, then heaps of fish, then the biggest fish to the most difficult fish. And then, eventually, the mentality shifts to an appreciation of the experience as a whole, and the pursuit of fish takes a back seat. At this stage, efforts are directed towards education, conservation, and uh, involvement with groups and organizations of like-minded folks. Casey Hackathorn, uh, does this model describe your personal journey through fly fishing at all? Yeah, I think that's true, although I still like to catch fish. Uh, Fair yeah, enough. I think mid, mid, midway through my career, I started uh, thinking that I needed to be working on things that were important to me, and so I started gravitating toward conservation. And uh, you are the uh, Upper Clark Fork Program Manager for TU now, um, and uh, I know it's been a journey to get there. You were a guide. You were an angler. Can you... Uh, share or still are an angler of course but um can you uh can you share one of your uh, past adventures with us i was thinking about that this morning on my way into the office and uh one uh adventure that came to mind was uh not related to trout but i was uh, stationed in san antonio 
uh, in the Air Force and had started to get into floating rivers. And uh, my roommate and I decided to go uh, try out the Devil's River in South Texas and um, set, up, set up some shuttles and kind of just dove into this 60-mile trip that uh, ends up down in Amistad Reservoir uh, on the Texas border country. Midway through the trip, um, we started hooking into some big yellow cats. wasn't really a target. We were uh, down there trying to do some bass fishing and um, sitting around camp at night. Threw on some smallmouth guts after eating some bass around the fire and uh, started hooking into some catfish that you had to lift off the ground to get their lower, you know, lift their gills above your waist to get the tails off the ground. Nice and. We weren't, weren't super well provisioned. We hadn't really done many river trips before. And uh, somewhere along the way, I uh, lost my rod into the river. Uh, I kicked over my last glass of whiskey, and that was kind of the end of the fish oh, for me. For heartbreaking. The yeah, yeah. The, the rod's one thing, but <laughs> the, the ladder's irreplaceable. That was uh, kind of the beginnings of my um, adventures on, on river trips that has led me to Montana and this whole career so that trip down the devils was kind of the impetus for uh for your move um move out to the west you're, you're from the midwest originally right a midwestern transplant yeah i grew up in around kansas city uh we lived on a farm and had a stream that ran through our through our farm and uh yeah i've always been fascinated by by moving water we were a family of meat fishermen mostly lakes and reservoirs and uh, didn't really know much about rivers or how to navigate them um, but that, you know, that kind of stuck with me all my life and you know, eventually found my way to, to getting down them. That's, that's interesting that, uh, that you kind of started out on the devil's river. Um, that's uh that's a place that I've been meaning to get to. I, uh, produced a show there years ago, but I was not able to attend the production. Um, and, uh, it looks just super cool with a, there's a bunch of different fish in that thing, correct? Yeah, it's pretty neat. It, it, uh, it basically flows out of the ground on, on the edge of the Edwards Plateau, which is the hill country in Texas. And the groundwater basically kind of finds its way uh, out of this limestone system. So it flows out of the ground, swimming pool color, uh, clear, and uh, yeah, winds its way s- south through a bunch of ranch land before it hits Amistad Reservoir and, um, and meets up with the Pecos uh, on, on the Rio Grande, uh, but there's, yeah, there's, there's native bass. There's some, some chitlids, the, the Rio Grande perch in there. There's carp, there's several catfish. You know, it's kind of a menagerie of, 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 uh, of fish, no trout though. That's okay. There's uh there's, there's lots of places to fish for trout. It's, it's cool when you can find a place like that with a, with a variety of different warm water species to go target. Yeah, at the time, it was not a place that there was much uh, traffic. Um, the stream access law in Texas is a little murkier than Montana. Um, you're, they, they, the ranchers down there um, date back to uh, Spanish land grant time. So they own the, the bed of the river and the banks. And while you, if you're not seen, um, is probably the, the, the best approach there, but... Um, it makes it a little harder to do multi-day trips. Uh, there's very little public land down there, so it's uh, yeah, a little, little sporty, but um, a fun adventure. 
So if you if you spill your bourbon down there, you're kind of out of luck. There's no recovering it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> in fact, the later trip is a whole other story. We'll talk some other time. But I lost a boat down there, and uh, it's not very easy, not very easy to get out of either. The Devil's River's living up to its name for you. Right. Right. <laughs> well, very cool. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned, you're the uh, Upper Clark Fork Program Manager for TU, and one of our uh, first introductions in person was on the Upper Clark Fork uh, during a production of TU's television program with an emphasis on uh, the cleanup efforts that were underway. <clears throat> and that was kind of right at the beginning of that cleanup effort, I believe. Um, and uh, for many years, the fishing improved greatly up there. And um, specifically, um, you know, personally, I saw um, an increase in the numbers of West Slope cutthroat. Um, which seem to be making quite a comeback. Uh, can you give us some background on um, the targeted habitat improvement projects on the Upper Clark Fork and the tributaries? Yeah, I guess I might take a little step back and kind of just explain what's generally going on in the Upper Clark Fork. It's actually in the footprint of the largest uh, geographic complex of Superfund sites in the in the country. It starts in in Butte and the headwaters of, of the Clark Fork. Silverboat Creek runs through Butte and um, there's a fair amount of mining activity dating back to the 1870s. Uh, and in, in 1908, there was a historic flood of record. At the time, there were more than a dozen smelters and um, tons of underground mines in Butte. All of that uh, smelter and mine waste got washed down into the Clark Fork, deposited in the floodplain uh, through the Deer Lodge Valley, and then eventually stacked up behind the recently completed Milltown Dam. So uh, those um, mine wastes contain a, a handful of metals and arsenic uh, that are toxic to fish and people. And uh, eventually they were designated as Superfund sites and work began uh, really in the mid 2000s uh, to start cleaning them up. Uh, you might you were around through the whole Milltown dam removal process that um, was pretty much completed by the time you and I did that um, float for the TU TV show. And uh, yeah, I started started working for Trout Unlimited about the time uh, that the cleanup work turned toward that Deer Lodge Valley, kind of between uh, Warm Springs where the Clark Forks formed with Warm Springs Creek and Silverboat Creek down to about Garrison. Those 43 miles is where uh, the work on the Clark Fork's going on now to kind of re restore that main stem river. And while that's going on, uh, to you and uh, numerous other partners are working on restoring and reconnecting the tributary habitat so that by the time all that cleanup work's done, uh, we hope to have a restored fishery, which uh, for it kind of the Clark Fork fishery itself uh, is uh, quite a fit far behind uh, other major rivers around here, around 200 fish per mile on average. Um, that kind of goes up and down, but uh, that's about 20% of what it should be compared to you know, the Blackfoot or the Bitterroot. So looking at the Clark Fork as a whole, um, that's from basically like, you know, St. Regis or the, the uh, confluence with the flathead all the way up to warm springs the average is about 200 fish per river mile no that's just 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 the upper clark fork so essentially okay, gotcha. yeah from it's it's through the it's through the areas that were most impacted by mining essentially from its headwaters down to about rock creek 
um, after Rock Creek, it become it's relatively normal. <laughs> um, gotcha. But, yeah. Um, and so I've noticed a, a decline. Just I don't know if it's a decline in the fishing. Just the last couple of times that I've floated up there, it, it hasn't been as good in the last year and a half as it was mm-hmm. before. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, initially I thought that uh, perhaps I was just running into bad timing because um, the the river didn't look really any different to me. Um, there just didn't seem to be trout where there usually are. Um, and then I had heard a rumor of a fish kill and, um, you know, some incidental loss of fish habitat associated with, with some cleanup efforts. Um, can you kind of sift through the, the hyperbole and rhetoric here and provide us with, uh, with an actual, your assessment of the trend relative to the upper Clark Fork? Yeah, I, I, well, I'll, I'll try to, I, I think that there's a lot more questions at this point than, than there are easy to sum up answers. One of the things to understand is that uh, in addition to all those mining impacts, uh, the upper Clark Fork also suffers from all of the challenges that you see in other area rivers uh, from dewatering, uh, the impacts of, of, um, of nutrients and, uh, from both natural sources and from things like um, septic tanks and municipal water systems. So you have that al- al- those algae issues you see in the Clark Fork. Um, so and connectivity issues. So uh, there's their connected tributaries are also an issue. So we, you start stacking all of those problems on top of each other. It's sometimes it's very hard to tease out what the actual limiting factors are for fish. But one part is is undeniable that in the last several years, the fishery immediately below Warm Springs ponds, which is essentially where Silverboat Creek comes in and forms the Clark Fork, the fish populations drop precipitously. Um, and we're at kind of all time lows in that reach immediately, immediately below the ponds. And historically, uh, that those ponds have been a subsidy for fish. Basically, it's not exactly a tailwater, but because of the because of the nutrients available, it, it basically had a very productive system immediately below the ponds with fish populations, you know, up to, you know, 2000 fish per mile, um, mostly brown trout dominated brown trout are a little more um, tolerant of w- higher water temperatures and the metals that were around up there. Uh, but most recent, the last couple of years, the fish counts have been down, you know, below a hundred in some cases, you know, less than, less than 50 trout per mile in that reach well if you as you mentioned um uh, that that fishery uh the upper clark fork sits at the uh kind of epicenter of one of the country's largest superfund sites so um it's a daunting task that you that you tu and your partners have to try to clean up um an area that uh, was was so impacted by by mining and other activities yeah, I've been at it for about 10 years, and I feel like I'm just kind of wrapping my um, arms around really what all while is going on. Uh, Trout Unlimited is one of um, many partners, uh, state the state and federal agencies, the, uh, lo- local advocates, all kind of working toward that same goal. So there's dozens of, of people out there spending their careers trying to, to work on this. And, you know, we just have kind of one piece of the puzzle. Um, but I guess I didn't probably quite answer your question. So there, the last 10 years or so, the state has started to, to do remediation, rest, restoration work um, on that upper river. About 10 miles of the 43 or so has been completed. 
And um, some folks are pointing toward that as like the, the reason that the fish population has dropped. Uh, and there's quite a, there's quite a few quite a bit of research right now trying to understand you know what the habitat impacts of this you know of this cleanup work is having and trying to figure out whether if the habitat's limiting what can be done while that while uh, in the process of that cleanup work to help kind of nudge things along. Um, personally, I don't think that it, that's the sole problem, um, and and certainly, it's it's an important piece. And you know, we're um, hoping to see some some more uh, faster recovery from from that work. Um, but there's other things going on. I think that we need to get a handle on before that fish is that 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 fishery is going to fully recover. Yeah. So the big takeaway is that um, you know this is. Uh, it's a it's a massive watershed for one um the clark fork being the largest largest watershed by volume in the state of montana mm -hmm. correct that's true yeah and the upper clark fork the parts that are essentially above meltdown dam or above the blackfoot river about is about four thousand square miles so it's it's a big area and a big area that um that uh, was was mistreated in terms of of cold water habitat for many decades yeah. Um, and it's going to take uh, a, a lot of time and, and effort to to get this to where to where your aspirations are and, and to you and your partners and, and, you know, maybe where where some of the local angling community would like it to be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you got to kind of ride these these little fluctuations in and out, because I know that, you know, it seemed like four years ago it was really good up there. And, uh, and then of course you have more angling pressure too. And, uh, you know, to kind of steer things away from the upper Clark fork, um, specifically, uh, Western Montana as a whole kind of stands at a crossroads, you know, on, on one fork, we have really largely healthy river systems here. Um, and, you know, we're on the heels of several good water years. So we're enjoying the benefits of that, of having plenty of cold, clear water in the systems on our side of the mountains anyway. Um, and uh, on you know on on the other road we have this legion of anglers and, and mm -hmm. increased commercial use uh, guides um, and other river users that uh, shows no signs of slowing down. Um, in your opinion, how do we find some measure of balance to maintain the river resources, uh, the fish, and uh, the overall experience for for river users? Well, that is a really good question, Justin. Dude, it's a million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I at this point spend my time trying to to, to solve the things that that uh, I I know that I can fix over time. Essentially, trying to to figure out how to make conservation work for the communities of people um, living on the landscape with 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 ranchers and water users and but the whole the whole challenge that we're facing now with the influx of um, of of more people is is uh, something I. I, I, I don't know how we're going to approach the increase in recreation out there is, you know, you, it's, it's visible every, pretty much every time you hit the river. Uh, and we just need to try to sort out how not to love it to death. And we've, we've enjoyed so much, I mean, freedom really in Montana for, for decades to be able to find solitude by just going a little farther than everybody else. And that's, you know, that's just not, no, that's not the case anymore. So I'm hopeful that, um, 
you know, this next generation of folks behind us can solve some of those challenges. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Pass, passing the buck again. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a daunting question and there's no easy answer. It's kind of like I, I, I liken it to looking up at the stars. Yeah, It's kind of like uh, it's so overwhelming and I think everybody is concerned about it. Um, yet, um, yet there's no, you know, nobody has any clear answers, whether some sort of increased permitting system is in order, um, some sort of, um, you know, allocation, um, in terms of guide days for, for individual outfitters. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not, obviously we're not pointing the finger at guides and outfitters. Um, they're, um, they're part of the overall, uh, consumption of, of the river, but, uh, yep. the increase in just, uh, you know, overall use, um, I think we're at a point where it needs to be addressed, but, uh, I, I don't know what the answer is to that, obviously. Um, well, it's, there, there's been a lot of che- people taking a lot of different stabs at it. I mean, the, 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 the Blackfoot's been, been reviewed, I think three times since, since I've been dating back to the early two thousands and no one's ever really come up with with an answer there, uh, you know, the, there's some rules that got implemented on the, the big hole and the beaver head around the same time um, that address commercial use. The West Fork Bitterroot um, went through a similar process and now kind of the Madison's the, the hot point in the state for, for that issue. And there, there, there really hasn't been a, a model that, that gets at all of it. You know, it's the easiest thing to, to, to do is to point to the commercial users, uh, and that's certainly a you know a big piece of the puzzle. But it's it's also not it doesn't encompass all of the challenge we're facing now. I think you know you you go down to um, go try to buy a raft right now. They're just they're, everything's sold out, and every I think the pandemic basically people decided that they were going to spend their money on things they wanted to do. And, uh, there's a whole influx of, of new users out there. Um, so, but I think you're right. The time is now and I don't know how to fix it, but, um, waiting, you know, isn't, isn't a very good answer. Yeah. It's such an interesting, um, consequence of the pandemic. Yeah. I don't know if consequence is the right word, but, um, uh, just, I, I did not foresee, um, this surge in outdoor activity, um, as you know, as a, uh, as a tag along aspect of a global pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, I think it caught everybody off guard. Those that maybe foresaw it, um, um, probably have been able to, to capitalize on it to some degree, <laughs> right. but, uh, right. but no, I, it, it was crazy because, uh, you know, when it first hit in 2020, um, I, I thought, oh man, this is going to be awesome. Like nobody's going to be able to get here. Um, we're going to have these rivers to ourselves. Uh, right. Uh, nobody was at work, and all of uh, the locals, even though you know the folks obviously from surrounding states, uh, felt comfortable traveling here. But just the amount of local fishing pressure that showed up, which was a which was a kind of a cool thing to see. Um, initially, you know, uh, families out together on the river, that's kind of how it's supposed to be. Um, but then, um, as things kind of opened up and then that mentality shifted to where, oh, I need to start enjoying life. I need to get outside. This is the safest place for me and my family is to mm-hmm. go camping and go on the river. And then that all just kind of collided. And, um, 
and we ended up with, uh, I, I, I didn't, you, you probably know the, the actual user numbers. I don't, but just, um, you know, f- from observation, I'd never seen anything like it here. Right. Yeah. I don't know about the numbers from last year, but it's been on a steady increase already. And, uh, it seems pretty obvious that that is, uh, that, that curve is steepened considerably all of a sudden you go, I think that one of the challenges facing is just educating a whole new group of, of, of users out there on, I don't know, the rules of the road, try to go to a boat ramp on a busy day right now. And you just, I, I think it kind of sets people off a little bit because, but it's largely just ignorance. I mean, no, everybody was there at some point, didn't know how to do it, but I don't know how you go about like teaching people how to, um, how to, how to be considerate of others. Right. Right. And that, you know, increased use is going to, is going to lead to conflicts is going to lead to, um, you, there's an, you know, an inevitable, um, negative connotation that's going to arise from this and, and be directed towards commercial use in particular. And, uh, you know, some of those folks that maybe not don't know the rules of the road. Um, and, uh, and that's something that we need to really try to avoid because that ruins the overall river experience for everybody. I've seen that. I've seen that occur in other places as I'm sure you have as well. Um, so that's, that's the, the, um, kind of the, possible outcome here that, uh, that, that is of concern to, to a lot of us for sure. Like, I, you know, for instance, last, last year on the upper Bitterroot, I had a, a, a local guy up there with his wife and, uh, you know, granted the dude's been drinking. Um, but, uh, he, he was really aggressive towards, towards myself, towards other river users. And, uh, you know, I, initially I was like, man, what a, what a jack wagon. Right. Um, but then as I thought about it, I'm like, well, you know, here's a guy that's probably lived up in Darby his whole life. And, uh, he's seen this scene play out yep. where his enjoyment of the river has been completely compromised, um, by all this use and activity. And he's just totally disgruntled about it. And, yep. uh, you know, it's just, is fed up fed up and and i don't blame him for that and uh and that is a uh, concern to all of us you know like we don't want to get to a point where we don't go take our kids fishing because there's just going to be 10 guide boats at the boat ramp and and a a bunch of other folks and you know what's the fun of going outside to escape stuff if there's nothing you can escape from right right i guess for those of us in the conservation community we're hopeful that increasing uh the number of people that are invested in uh, well, that, that turns those people toward investing in conservation. Or, um, hopefully, there's, I guess, a, a, a responding groundswell and need to to um, to conserve. Right, which is a hopefully a positive outcome in, right. in all of this. Is that uh, yeah, as, as more people do get involved in fishing and boating and river recreating, then you have a, a larger base of concerned citizens that mm-hmm. then want to perhaps follow this initial progression that I mentioned and, um, you know, land at a place where they're like, okay, well, we do need to do something to preserve and protect mm-hmm. this for mm-hmm. future generations. You've spent a lot of time recreating in Montana, um, fishing, hunting, hiking, um, any close calls with, with, with bears or, or other <laughs> wildlife you got? Uh, I, I have, I personally have, have not been 
threatened by by any 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 predators all all of my all of my encounters with bears have resulted in them running away which i'm thankful for but they're grizzlies are definitely on on the move out there in a lot of the places that i'm used to hunting without fear of those kind of encounters is um I guess that area is diminishing pretty rapidly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's always on my mind. Are there places that you don't go anymore um, due to the potential, you know, the, the, the chances of running into a bear? Or? I, I, I think that during archery season, I guess when we're a little more uh, susceptible to those kind of encounters, uh, I, I tend to, I'm starting to just kind of shy away from some, some of the, some of the, areas closer to the park those they're i've been hearing you know more and more reports of move, of them moving into the big hole which gives me pause but hasn't 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 kept me away <laughs> gotcha yeah there's places that i don't hunt anymore um because i've seen enough bears up there um you know specifically like the area around lincoln um you know um that uh uh, and and like you, I haven't had any I haven't had any uh, close calls like where I felt that I was in danger. I've been close to bears, but fortunately they've gone their other way and I've gone mine. But um, there's definitely uh, it's it's always on my mind, and there are places that I don't go anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. The Blackfoot pe- people had some encounters from, from boats up there. <laughs> Yeah, having some false charges coming out of raft, and you, and you never really think. You know, you're always kind of thinking about it when you're hiking. But um, uh, and then math, and then Matthew Churchman, who um, uh, got attacked last year on a river trip uh, over on the front, um, m- makes you kind of start thinking about having that bear spray in your boat in some of those places. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, we had done that same float where Matt got attacked a week before. And, um, and it could have easily been us, you know, I can't say that I had the bear spray on my hip all the time. And I'm sure knowing that that crew and those, those, those anglers and, right. and those boaters, you know, I'm, I know that they were very well prepared and it was just one moment where the guard was let down and that can happen to anyone. I just got a new, uh, bear spray belt. Have you seen those? No, it sounds good though. So it's, it's neat. It's, it's, it's like a little fanny pack and it's neon. It looks great on rollerblades. <laughs> you always struggle with trying, you know, I attach it to my pack, but then it's usually stuck and you then you can't take it off and, um, or you set your pack down and you're making a stalk or something. It's, it's kind of hard to figure out what to do with it. And then you're always afraid that you're actually going to set it off when it's in your rig. I haven't had that happen yet. Um, but it, it doesn't sound like it's a, would, would be very pleasant. Did I ever tell you my bear spray? Um, my myself bear spraying incident i don't think so so uh i was bow hunting this was probably 15 years ago up by lincoln and um my buddies and i had stayed out a little late that evening and we were jamming to get back through back to the truck and we went through this stand of like kind of old burned out um lodgepole christmas trees and you know how those are super grabby and sticky Mm -hmm. and and at some point during that descent, unbeknownst to me, one of those Christmas trees grabbed uh, the safety latch on my bear spray, and I didn't know that. And then when I got down to the truck, we were parked below this little embankment, and I had to, to step down, and I pinned the bear spray between my 
belly, my gut, and uh, and my upper thigh, and the nozzle went down my pants, and I oh. emptied about half the can down my pants. <laughs> so, don't bear spray, don't bear spray your own balls. That's the moral of the story. Have you recovered from that? Uh, I did. It took some time. Um, I rushed down to camp, and I, I took a shower, and um, I might have had a nip of Bushmills. <laughs> And I lay down on my cot and everything seemed okay. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, it started burning and I didn't sleep a wink that night. And about four in the morning, it kind of started to subside. And I thought, oh, I'm good enough to go hunt today. So we went back up on the mountain. And when I started hiking, you know, I assumed right. my sweat pores opened back up and it all started over again. And I was sitting there, we were glassing some elk. I put my binos up and I took them down and I felt my eyes kind of burning. I looked at my buddy and he started laughing at me and he's like, man, we let's get the hell out of here. You're a mess. You've got bear sprays in your eye. You got bear spray in your eyes. I can smell it all over you. It's starting to sting me. This is a done deal. And uh, yeah, I, I had to end up throwing my clothes away. I tried washing it out of them, but uh, yeah, that kept saying sticky stuff. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, you do bring up a good point. I've got to spend some time on the Blackfoot here in the next little bit. And uh, I'm going to get a new can today um, to go with uh, with my new belt. Because I did hear uh, one of those stories that you related of uh, a boat being bluff charged up there recently. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Uh, any, uh, any other uh, fishing stories or anything uh, that you got for us today, Casey? You got... Uh, you must have, uh, you ever flip a boat or, or lose an oar or anything interesting, or are you just a straight shooter? Well, uh, I think that they say that there's only two kinds of people, people that flip the boat and people that haven't flipped the boat yet. Right. Which class are you? Uh, I flipped some boats. Yeah. I, I, I this, uh, non fishing story, but, um, I don't know, must've been 15 or 20 years ago is sitting on at one of those houses on Vine Street um, in the lower Rattlesnake and had a few cocktails and um, started talking to a, a now a longtime friend of mine, but I'd never met him before uh, about about paddling. Uh, I had taught some some canoe courses for Knowles over the years, and uh, we started trading stories about uh, canoe trips. And he said, well, you know, the, the North Fork of the Blackfoot's looking pretty good right now, which you want to go paddle with it with on me, t with me tomorrow. And it, you know, in a tandem canoe. Um, and for those of you that have spent uh, time whitewater paddling, uh, when you get in a boat with another person, uh, there's a lot of, of, of dinamics, you know, and they, they, they call it a divorce boat for, for a reason. <laughs> but you know, we, I've, the guy seemed pretty competent. Well, he, 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 he is, I, he's a close friend now, but, um, neither one of us had paddled with each other before and jumped on long story short, we jumped on the North Fork at about 3000 CFS, uh, and didn't really make it more than a couple hundred yards before we swamped and flipped and, uh, had kind of a bad swim, trying to keep up with the boat, bash my knee, uh, had to run up to the road and start chasing the boat down. Eventually, a kayaker pushed it over to the side. I had to swim, swim, swim across, back across the river, 
plugged a hole that had been punched through the hole of the boat and um, like about the size of your finger, like a hot poker went through the whole thing. I don't know what it was that did it, but um, I'm glad it didn't, wasn't through my rib cage. Jeez. And uh, we got the boat out, got it back on the car and basically turned around and went home. <laughs> <laughs> what'd, you, what'd you plug the hole with? Uh, just, uh, just duct tape. You know, it's oh, temporary. there you go. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was Chuck's boat, and um, yeah, we actually haven't been. We're we're longtime friends at this point. We haven't been back in a in in a boat together since. Oh really? Yeah, that was I, the I guess, that yeah. was the end of the romance. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the moral of the story is, you know, uh, to start start with something um, mellow when you're learning to when you're learning a new partner. Yeah, there. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, yeah, I tend to to veer towards the more mellow stuff uh, anyway when I can these days. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, around here you can get in trouble just about anywhere. You gotta kind of be on your toes, especially this time of year when we're just on the heels of runoff and everything's changed and there's new trees in the water and and everybody's out fishing. So yeah. Uh, if folks want to learn more about uh, TU and the efforts on the Upper Clark Fork, what's the best way for them to find that information? Uh, they can look on tu.org or uh, they can just give me a call. You're at uh, kc.hackathorn at tu.org, is that that's, right? That's correct. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at the The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room. And we'll see you down here next week.